Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. We're pledging $1 billion per year to alleviate extreme poverty in New York City. New York's problems are a microcosm of America's economic challenges. But how far will even a billion dollars get us in the biggest city in the country? Across the country, millions more people are struggling with unemployment, unpaid bills, and sometimes hunger. And for those who are poor to begin with, things may be even worse. If a family winds up in our shelter system, we are spending $6,000 per month on that family. Um, And so if you spend a fraction of that keeping someone in their home and they don't wind up in our shelter system, it's actually a win. Andrew Yang became a household name running for president on a platform of a guaranteed income for everyone. Now he's running for mayor of New York City, and his message is similar. He wants to get cash into the hands of people who need it urgently. 11 U.S. cities have committed to versions of cash assistance programs or guaranteed income, including Stockton, California, Hudson, New York, St. Paul, and Pittsburgh. 85% of Americans are for cash relief during the pandemic, and 55% are for it in perpetuity. Is this another example of something where you just have to invent a a local version of it because the more rationalized national solution isn't available to you? Well, you said it, I didn't, Jacob. (laughs) New York is a city with over 8 million people. If something works here, it could work anywhere. Yang's plan could provide a powerful case study for the rest of the country. I'm Andrew Yang, and my solvable is extreme poverty in New York City. We can solve it. We can eradicate it. Andrew Yang is pushing for a new kind of universal basic income. This time, it's targeted, which is an oxymoron. How can he support something universally, but deliver it selectively? I started by asking him to explain how something like UBI could work in New York City. So you do have to 
draw uh, lines and parameters. Uh, you know, it's not feasible for us to give all 8.3 million New Yorkers uh, a certain amount of cash. So we are targeting the half a million New Yorkers who are uh, in extreme poverty. And uh, our goal is to lift them up so that they have uh, at least a certain baseline level of resources. It's more of a guaranteed minimum income in New York City than it is a universal basic income uh, that we're looking to implement. And where do you set the baseline? What would be the monthly payment to someone now in extreme poverty in New York City? So the the monthly payment uh, to get the 500,000 poorest New Yorkers out of extreme poverty averages out to $2,000 per person per year. Uh, And so we're pledging $1 billion per year to alleviate extreme poverty in New York City. And just in terms of the numbers, can $2,000 really lift someone out of poverty? That doesn't sound like a lot of money, especially in New York, uh, spread over a year. Well, extreme poverty is defined as half the poverty level. Uh, and so you have people that are making, you know, five, eight, ten thousand dollars a year. That two thousand dollars a year would be an extraordinary boost for them. And the two thousand dollars is an average level. Some will get one, some will get three. It pushes them to uh, a level where their very, very basic needs have a higher chance of being met. But we have a comprehensive anti-poverty agenda to supplement this cash relief. If you look at the population who's struggling with poverty in New York City, it overlaps very heavily with the 12% of New York City residents who are unbanked. And a lot of this population is uh, undocumented where they're scared to try and access basic financial services because they're afraid that they'll get uh, targeted in some way. So right now they're spending hundreds of dollars a year that they don't have, in some cases even thousands, on check cashers, money lenders, pawn shops that are charging you serious rates. So we can simultaneously integrate more of the New Yorkers who are struggling the most into our financial system in a way that gets them away from these check cashers and money lenders that are charging them um, and also get some money into their hands to help meet their basic needs. Yeah. And I know you have this interesting idea of a people's bank. Can you explain how that would work in New York? So the people's bank is a nonprofit fund uh, that we will use to augment the resources available to community development financial institutions, uh, which includes credit unions. And a lot of these CDFIs uh, are doing great work reducing the unbanked population because they're in these communities, they're trying to plug people in um, uh, to the financial system. And so the People's Bank is a way to get more resources to the organizations that are touching people and doing the work every day. The other thing that the People's Bank is going to do is it's going to work with traditional financial institutions to have a safe a bank account for folks uh, of any status. So you can walk into a city bank with an IDNYC, open a safe bank account under the People's Bank brand name, the, the People's Bank seal. So it, it's a way to integrate people in the financial system by getting more resources to community organizations and also uh, having like a trusted seal that will give them confidence that they, they can get a bank account even at like their a local branch. A lot of people talk about doing that nationally through the post office, which is, in fact, what they do in some other countries. In France, I know you can do your banking at a small scale at the post office. Is this another example of something where you just have to invent a a local version of it because the more rationalized national solution isn't available to you? Well, you said it. I didn't, Jacob. (laughs) But but I was for postal banking when I was running for president. Um, It's 
common sense, the no brainer, other countries do it. Uh, you know, you have to give the post office like more things to do, frankly, like in a lot of these places, because like, you know, the, the carriage of mail isn't necessarily sustaining it. And so let's say that you have that vision running for president. And then you're like, hey, I'm running for mayor of New York City now. Like, what can we do that's going to <laughs> that's going to try and solve some of the same problems? And and that's actually a pretty good example of the, the way we're approaching New York City's problems is obviously you have different operating realities, you have different levels of resources, but what can you do with the resources that you have that actually solve some of the same problems? New York presents a special case, Andrew, because it's such an expensive place to live. And based on studies I've read in the past, for people who didn't go to college, there are very few jobs in New York in the New York area that provide a middle-class income for a family. I think the, you know, unionized building trades are, you know, probably the only major source of middle-class, something resembling a middle-class living for people who don't have college degrees. Does your plan really address the, the depths of that problem, that there's just a mismatch between what it costs to live here and what jobs pay if you if you don't have some higher education? Well, Jacob, you're, you're pointing out some of the uh, long-running problems in New York City, and they, they're all tied together. So one thing you're describing is you have an economy that disproportionately will reward folks who are skilled and have certain uh, levels of education. And that's true nationwide, but it's, it's more true in New York City, to your point. Uh, the fact that there are actually meaningful unions and organizations fighting for folks who don't have college degrees has been an enormous path to the middle class for tens, hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers and that actually distinguishes New York from a lot of other environments. I mean, like, like the unions are a more powerful presence for mobility here um, than they are in other parts of the country. So then you have folks who are not unionized and who have low levels of education. And to your point, a lot of them are just scraping by. Uh, you have to try and attack the affordability issues. And the most intractable of them is clearly housing. Just living in New York City is very expensive, to your point. And so that's something that we have to try to invest in at a much higher level than we have. Uh, and I think there are opportunities there in part because right now, frankly, uh, vacancies uh, in uh, rental apartments are at multi-decade highs because of COVID. Our hotels are 80 to 90% unoccupied because we're missing so many tourists. Uh, there are opportunities to convert some of the buildings right now that are vacant and unused to affordable housing to try and have the opportunity to meet the need your uh, presidential campaign captured a lot of people's imagination because this was such a big idea. And also it, it's interesting background as a neither left nor right idea. Um, but it was a lot more money for a lot more people. It really was universal and it really was something resembling a minimum standard of living for everybody. This plan by comparison just seems not that much money for that, not that many people. Is that just the fiscal reality of New York City, that this is all you can do? Well, Jacob, I think that most people realize that if Andrew Yang had his way, uh, we'd all be getting $1,000 a month. <laughs> like, at this point, I think that doesn't go far enough. <laughs> like with, with, with COVID, I, I'd probably be more at like the $2,000 a month level. Um, and I think there are really creative ways that we can get more buying power into the hands of New Yorkers. So there are yeshivas in Brooklyn that ask the parents of uh, the, the children to buy $2,000 worth of vouchers to locally owned small businesses. They buy these vouchers, they then use them at the locally owned small businesses. The businesses turn them into the yeshiva um, and then the yeshiva takes a cut, let's call it 15%. 
So this is a massive fundraiser every year for the yeshivas and the small businesses win because they're getting a lot of business that they might have not have gotten otherwise. If New York City were a country, we would be the 11th biggest economy in the world. We're a very vast, diverse economy. There are ways that we can get buying power into people's hands that get funneled straight to locally owned small businesses in a way that's value multiplying. And so when you when you look at the problems we're trying to solve, we do have a crisis among restaurants and small businesses where thousands are closing, uh, thousands of others uh, aren't sure whether they're going to make it. And so, and then we have uh, food lines for blocks. Uh, we have 700,000 missing jobs. There are creative ways that we can get value into people's hands that will circulate in a way that will help our communities directly. So when you talk about some of the fiscal realities we face, uh, you know, New York City is not the federal government. We can't conjure up 1.9 trillion. Um, but there are things that we can do that will get value into people's hands. It's one reason I'm running for mayor is that I think I can do more to help turn us around. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. 
In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. At uh, $2,000 a year, it isn't really an issue, but a lot of people who object to the idea of a UBI are simply concerned that it will disincentivize people to work. And, you know, this and this is the argument about welfare, you know, going back decades, whether it should be conditioned on work or whether it should be offered in the form of a guaranteed job. Obviously, your proposals go very strongly in the in the direction of non-conditionality. Can you explain why you think that's not a problem with the idea of UBI? That is why UBI doesn't um, make it possible for people who would otherwise be working full or part-time to not work? Well, I'll, first, I'll lay, lay out the objections so people know what they are. And you can imagine what they are. Number one is, how do we pay for it? And number two is, what will people do with the money? When the CARES Act was passed and we, we put $1,200 into people's hands, and this was a very small fraction of the $2.2 trillion, um, in the CARES Act, we could have given everyone in, in America $6,000 and still had billions left over in the CARES Act, but most of the money went to uh, companies and institutions of various kinds. So number one, now Americans are like, oh, we actually had the money. You know, like we could have done this if we wanted to at any point. And then number two, how would you spend the money? Uh, it's manifest in how people actually did spend the money because when they got the $1,200, they spent it on uh, food and fuel, their basic needs and, and keeping a roof over their head. And it did not transform their personalities. It didn't change their work ethic. And so now like the, the objections that people have have really been kind of demonstrated not to, to be as compelling by our own experience. Uh, you know, and it's one reason why cash relief now is uh, so front and center um, in our national conversation as to what to do. Uh, 85% of Americans are for cash relief during the pandemic and 55% are for it in perpetuity. But I, I think that the thought around work ethic, it's very deeply baked into the, the American psyche. The odds of people starting a small business in their community would skyrocket if both they had a certain amount of money they could rely on and if everyone in their community had a certain amount of money to spend. How is New York's fiscal condition looking ahead, which is another way of asking the question of how affordable it would be to create and expand this program. Um, you know, going back decades, of course, the city had a fiscal crisis and was essentially bankrupt. But in recent years, its revenue is very much spurred by the boom in the real estate market. And it's been pretty flush. I mean, budgets have grown and, you know, there haven't big, been big shortfalls. But post-COVID, obviously, we don't know what the city's going to look like, what property values are ultimately going to settle in at. Is the city in good fiscal shape or, or terrible fiscal shape? Uh, the city is in bad fiscal shape. You're looking at multi-billion dollar deficits uh, for the foreseeable future for the next, let's call it, four years. Some of the numbers, Jacob, that I have top of mind, we've lost 27,000 lives 700,000 jobs, 60 million tourists who used to support 300,000 of those jobs. Several hundred thousand people have left New York City, including some people who are frankly very uh, high tax payers and earners. Subway ridership is down 70%. Um, let's call it a four to $5 billion deficit on a budget of 88 billion or so. Uh, and we're not even sure whether that's the precise level because some of these things are still playing out. Midtown 
commercial real estate is 82% unoccupied, which is devastating, not just for those organizations and their landlords uh, over time, but also the security guards and the food trucks and the street level retail that ordinarily w- would have that the, those commuters every day. This is a really, really dark time for New York City, and there's no guarantee it comes back the way that we want it to. We should know that that's what we're facing. I guess someone could come and give you like the rosier version <laughs> of what I just described, but I'm a numbers guy. And the, those are just the, the realities we're facing. Now, you were asking in the context of this particular universal, or in my case, not universal, like a guaranteed minimum income in New York City. I do want to tell a story that pushes us in the, that direction. I talked to a philanthropist here in New York. She ran a foundation that gave new moms uh, baby clothes and formula and uh, strollers. And then when COVID hit, they just converted to cash. They were like, well, we can't give you all the stuff because you know it, it's tough for this environment. So we're just going to send you money. And then it turns out that that worked really well. <laughs> and, and so then they're like, hey, maybe we should stick to this. Um, so there are a lot of philanthropists who had similar experiences. Uh, and I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to augment our, our resources by teaming up with some of the nonprofits and foundations in the city to say, look, this is the most effective thing we can do to alleviate poverty directly by putting money into people's hands. Because if you keep people in more stable situations in New York City, Jacob, we actually save a lot of money. Yeah. I think a question coming up in in the debates is surely going to be whether this is the best use of a billion dollars to alleviate poverty in New York. You know, you could do a lot about housing and homelessness with a billion dollars. You could do a lot for the public schools. Given those other pressing needs, do you think it really makes sense to be categorical about uh, supplementing cash income? Well, Jacob, one of the problems you cited is homelessness. And I'm very confident that putting resources into people's hands is going to reduce the crisis of homelessness that we're seeing in New York City. If a family winds up in our shelter system, we are spending $6,000 per month on that family. And so if you spend a fraction of that keeping someone in their home and they don't wind up in our shelter system, it's actually a win. One of the things I've committed to is reducing the level of street homelessness by more than 50% in my first term. And it is doable. Uh, We can invest in safe haven beds and mental health resources and supportive housing and more assertive interventions uh, to get people the help that they need. So what I would argue is that this extreme poverty relief program will actually reduce some of the other problems that you're talking about, um, whether it be homelessness or public safety or education, uh, because obviously a lot of these people have families and it's very difficult for a child to learn if they're in extreme poverty. I mean, you, you know, you can imagine what that, that that's like. Um, I talked to someone yesterday who grew up in poverty and he said that his last meal of the week was school lunch on Friday and then he didn't eat again until uh, school lunch on Monday. You know, so you can imagine the learning environment, you know, for that for that child. So cash relief touches a lot of other problems. We need to invest in the other problems, obviously, directly. But I would argue that that this is actually something that will make those other solutions more effective. I'm curious about why extreme poverty and cash relief is the problem that you've really devoted your career to at this point. I mean, personally, is there, how did you come to this? Did you experience poverty at some point in your life? Did you witness extreme poverty? Uh, Jacob, uh, I'm, I'm the, the child of immigrants, but I, I had a relatively uh, privileged upbringing in like a middle-class household and, uh, you know, in upstate New York and the suburbs. 
for me, I came to this because I spent years running an organization, uh, Venture for America, that I founded that was creating jobs around the country in the Midwest and the South primarily. And I became convinced that our economy is transforming in ways that will leave millions and millions of us behind. It already is. I mean, and the pandemic has sped it up. Experts have called it the fourth industrial revolution. If you play out what impact technology will have on our labor force, it's going to be disruptive to the lives of tens of millions of Americans. Uh, Most common jobs in the economy are retail, call centers, food service, food prep, truck driving, and manufacturing. Uh, And and what what you heard is that, oh, we're going to retrain them. But then as soon as you dig into the realities of retraining, like the, the programs don't work. It doesn't make sense. You're not going to take a thousand coal miners and turn them into coders. Uh, the fact is, if you actually follow up after you have the press release saying we're going to train coal miners as coders, then you get there and they're working at Sam's Club. So I arrived at universal basic income because I saw it as inevitable uh, as a response to these economic changes. Uh, like we have to make this investment now. Um, so that's why I ran for president. We won the argument right now at this point, uh, though, our government is not functioning in a way that you know, if a majority of Americans want something, it passes. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, so that's why I'm so passionate about it, uh, Jacob. There is just so much unnecessary, untold human misery that we could just alleviate tomorrow if we just decided to do so. But you're making a bet, aren't you, that the economic future is going to be fundamentally different from the past. In the past, when jobs, um, uh, hard physical jobs have disappeared because of automation and trade, Generally, workers have have moved up the value chain. The United States has produced uh, products with bigger value add and ultimately standard of living increases. And when you talk about this idea of the fourth industrial revolution, isn't it making an assumption? Obviously, the individual stories are entirely real and there are there is structural displacement of jobs. But when you look at the economy as a whole, are you convinced that really is our future? That is having a really significant segment of society that is structurally unemployed? Jacob, it's our present. Look around. Uh, You know, I mean, you have the ranks of the long-term unemployed rising every week because of the pandemic. This is no longer speculative. This is the reality we are faced with right now. Uh, And even the the first industrial revolution at the turn of the century involved mass riots and unrest. Uh, Labor Day is inaugurated because of riots that, that, uh, you know, caused a number of deaths. Um, And this industrial revolution is faster, nastier, broader, Uh, It's going to touch more industries. You can just look around and see very clearly that we are disintegrating by the numbers. Uh, You know, you ask any economist and say, hey, like, uh, are these folks that are losing their jobs, are they like finding new opportunities? We are moving across state lines at lower levels than we have in decades. So the adaptation is not happening. The disintegration is. And the question is, how quickly will we acknowledge it and do something about it? Yeah. Andrew, what can listeners do about this problem? And I'm not talking about supporting your campaign for mayor. I'm talking about whether or not you're elected mayor. What can listeners do about elevating the economic status of the worst off New Yorkers? Well, you you switched the topics there, Jacob, because Mm -hmm. first I I thought you were like, what what can we do to elevate universal basic income uh, as a national solution? And then it was like helping New Yorkers. I mean, if you want to help New Yorkers, uh, you you should donate to food pantries and uh, nonprofits that are, that are meeting people's needs right now. I mean, that's very direct. You should be supporting local businesses yourself. You should be tipping generously. You should just be like putting money into people's hands uh, in any way you can. If you think that I'd make a, a good leader, 
uh, of New York's revival, certainly I would love your support. <laughs> you know, at, uh, and at a national level, we just need to keep pushing folks, particularly, uh, frankly, like folks who are more on the right to say that this is pro-business, it's pro-jobs, it's pro-humanity. Uh, uh, I'm happy to say that at this point, this is not a left or right idea, it, it's forward. And if we can build consensus around it, we have a chance to alleviate poverty in our time, not just in New York, but uh, everywhere in the U.S. Andrew, I understand you recovering, recovered from COVID-19. I hope you're feeling better. Boy, it must be tough campaigning when you have that illness. Well, thank you, Jacob. I feel much better now, but it was a nasty uh, number of days. But, uh, we, you know, I appreciate the sentiment. We're going to get through this time. Uh, but COVID is, is definitely something uh, that you should take very, very seriously. Andrew Yang is running for mayor of the city of New York. To learn more about universal basic income and guaranteed minimum income, check out the links in our episode notes. Solvable senior producer is Jocelyn Frank. Research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing and producer is Catherine Girardot. And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks this week to Heather Fain, Khadija Holland, Maya Koenig, Emily Rostek, Eric Sandler, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Christina Sullivan, and Maggie Taylor. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review it. It really helps to get the word out. You can find Pushkin Podcasts wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.